Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And this is the special Christmas Eve RV edition. I've just thrown that out there, assuming we're going to get this edited and released for Christmas Eve. RV 22. Pair, is of, it? pair of swans. In huh. bingo terminology, right. 22 is a pair of swans. 22 released on the 24th. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what, are we, what are we ever talking about? What are we talking about this week? Okay, two things that we're going to talk about. Louise Baxter, CEO, Starlight Children's Foundation. Mm. And Dan Kieran, VC, on the double episode we did with Dan um, on Life in Uniform and Beyond. Both cracking episodes. In fact, both cracking guests, all three cracking episodes. But let's talk about Louise first. Um, it's funny coming from a military background, you've got an idea of leadership, you've got an idea of sort of operational output. And one of the things I've loved most about doing this series um, of podcasts is the exposure you get to different styles of leadership and just these amazing human beings who are doing things in a field that's very different from the, the military environment. And Louise is certainly one of those. Now, you know Louise through your own service with um, Starlight as a board member. Yeah, that's right. I'm on the advisory board um, for Starlight Children's Foundation and I met Louise through, through that role. Mm. And she's unbelievable. In fact, she... Well, she's been CEO since 2009 from memory. The organisation is multi-award winning in the Great Places to Work Awards. Mm. You know, you insert which one, but from the Australian Financial Review, BOSS, where Starlight Children's Foundation was rated number one. I think it's in the top 20 organisations to work for in Australia more generally. And, and she's definitely spearheaded that with a real focus on culture. And let's just not leave that for a second, because you think, on paper, an organisation that is trying to bring some joy to some really chronically crook children's lives, you know, fundamentally, this is a, a sad, a very serious, a very powerful, you know, lots of gravitas surrounding this kind of work that they do. Mm. And yet, the energy, the fun, the excitement that that organisation is able to bring, not just to uh, the, the people that they're working to support, but also amongst themselves. It's quite incredible that they're mm. able to turn that into such a positive thing. Joy, yeah. So how can you bring joy to seriously ill children? It's very difficult, particularly for those that have long-term hospitalisation. It's it's a great inspiration to me. Mm. You know, we, we've talked about this before, Ben, but, you know, when your own children are sick at home, it's tragic, mm. let alone when they are in hospital permanently. I mean, they're going to school in hospital. And so the charity does an incredible job through um, a number of different programs, Starlight Express Room and Livewire, to, to brighten the lives of those seriously ill kids. Um, and Louise, leading from the front. Yeah. And I love the, the sort of theme of silliness that, that mm. comes out in a lot of what they do. And, and Louise spoke about this in uh, our discussion, just that... With we, Captain Starlight. Yeah, we, yep. we can tend to take ourselves so seriously. And 
the ability to to lighten up a bit and um, you know just allow yourself to be childlike and and silly in all sorts of walks of life can be a really powerful thing. Yeah, that's right. And you know, Captain Starlight comes from the planet Starlight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should get that right. Yeah, your astronomy is not a stupid. Yeah, yeah point. that's that's exactly right. But they don't have sick kids on mm. the planet that Captain Starlight comes from, so. Captain Starlight's very inquisitive and uh, it's kind of nearly irrelevant how sick the children are. They just want to come and have fun. Mm. And they're able to do that in a way that kids are interested in going and seeing doctors who, in the eyes of the kids, bring pain. In fact, in the reception areas of um, some of the specialists that these kids go and see, they insist on having Captain Starlight there because the kid wants to go and um, and attend that specialist appointment. I mean, that's a real tell, isn't it, that the program is doing wonderful things. And kids name the captains. That's a pretty cool little thing. So when you come across a Captain Starlight, for anyone that's in a children's hospital, uh, ask Captain Starlight their name, and they have some cracking, <laughs> cracking names. Um, and the the other one, you know, the case study that Louise talks about on the episode is Nathan Cavalieri, mm. who uh, was a you know, child prodigy guitarist, and it was through Starlight he got his first guitar and actually his wish to go and meet Mark Knopfler mm. back in the day. And he's an incredibly accomplished artist now, and Starlight have been part of that journey with Nathan. Yeah, and you and I had the privilege, or I had the privilege of... Um, sort of tagging along with you at, at one of the amazing Starlight Five Chefs dinners and seeing Nathan play there and hearing his story. And I think that epitomises one thing that I think Starlight does amazingly well, and that is balance that um, uh, in their fundraising efforts, balance the, the real seriousness of mm. what they're, they're raising money for um, with just this amazingly polished and, and fun sort of evening. Mm. Um, and they've, they've certainly done that at all the, the events that I've been. Yeah, and I think in Australia, Starlight Five Chefs Dinner occurs in nearly every state capital. And I would encourage those that are interested in knowing a little bit more about Starlight to keep an eye out for that and, and come to the Five Chefs Dinner. Not surprisingly, Five Chefs serve different courses throughout the evening. There's always entertainment. There's definitely, for me, a little tear in the corner of the eye as they tell some stories. But it is a great fun evening, really great fun. Yeah, they do it well. Um, and there are other activities as well, um, bike rides, swims, and a range of other things to be involved in if you would like to support Starlight. Mm. And look, one of the, the, I guess, things that really resonated with me as Louise reflected on her leadership at that organisation was her comments about authenticity and vulnerability, which you and I have spoken a lot about both in sort of our professional concept texts and, and in this podcast. And it was great just to see such a powerful and clearly incredibly capable and competent leader um, saying that, you know, as a leader, you don't need to have all the answers. You don't mm. need to pretend uh, that you've, you've got it all squared away, but you do need to be able to inspire and motivate your team to, to help come up with the answers and work the way through. And I think probably no more so profound than, than in this year we've just had where they've, they've had to face challenges and, and new ways of doing things, particularly when you talk about 
major fundraising events that rely on a lot of people being in the same room at the same time. Well, a fascinating thing actually was as we came through the start of the COVID period and people were incredibly nervous and organisations weren't going to put their hand deep in their pocket until there was some surety about when they might pop out the other side of COVID-19. One of the very cool things that Starlight did is they rang donors, not to ask for money, but just to say thanks and check in. Hmm. That was it. And um, I think that was that's a wonderful example of how Starlight cares back to those people that support them, those organisations that support them. No, an outstanding organisation. enough One of them's flowing Not far enough One of them's crying What has made it sad So from courage in a children's hospital to courage under fire, we spoke with Daniel Kieran, VC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Dan yeah. Kieran's book, um, and part of it that I really enjoyed was his upbringing. Yeah. You know, absolute rogue of a father. Uh, I think the book opens with the line: "The first person I ever saw shot was my father." And, and I uh, think I reflected, uh, and it really struck home. My my daughter's just finished primary school, and they're always taught you must have a sizzling start. Mm. So all the creative writing had to have sizzling starts, and that's a that's a. <laughs> super sizzling start mm. but it's a it's also a fascinating story of love in the family you know mum clearly loved dad dad was an absent father but that didn't stop mum deeply mm. loving um, cowboy Kieran Dan's dad um, and then Dan didn't quite have that same relationship with his father and uh, dad convinces mum to go out to a property and Dan Kieran literally sleeps on the dirt floor of a shack for some years whilst going to high school, um, I mean, which which made life at Kapuka and his recruit training when he joined the <laughs> army a little easier. <laughs> you get a bed here. I mean, you can forget about the the incredible exploits that that um, saw him awarded the Victoria Cross, and and you've got a cracking story even just in his his upbringing and and what he's overcome and and the person that he is today. But a big part of that, you you mentioned uh, it wasn't necessarily dad, but but granddad, his, his grandfather was a, an incredible role model, an incredible sort of. Um, figure in his life. That's right, yeah. The real father figure for Dan uh, also saw service in World War II, service that he never really talked about to Dan, but they enjoyed a special relationship, including at the end of the fishing rod, you know, they used to go fishing together um, up in and around Nambour or Maroochydore area on mm. the Sunshine Coast. It's funny how some of these vehicles... And I think probably particularly for guys, um, but, you know, having an activity like fishing or, Tim, you've spoken in different contexts about football clubs and these kind of things that almost give you an excuse to be able to, to be with other people and, and actually talk about stuff um, can be really amazingly powerful vehicles to to develop your your social relationships, but also, you know, develop your, your psychological safety. 
the social relationships into Kapuka, getting yelled at by corporals after getting yelled at by his dad. Gets a, anti-social relationships. Anti-social relationships. Gets a bed and enjoys some physical training. He's always been a good runner, um, but develops himself physically and then goes into the 6th Battalion and starts to see some operational tours, including Timor, which he talks about in the book, and then into Iraq, um, as a driver of a protected mobility vehicle and then two, two tours in Afghanistan, his first tour actually in support of Special Operations Task Group mm. and um, s- some wonderful stories there about how we needed to pretty much keep artificially awake to keep up with the tempo of operations mm. that the Special Operations Task Group was undertaking and then back again with his own unit um, a year or two later and in the Battle of Derapat, he wins the Victoria Cross. Yeah, the dreaded 42 Northing. I, I, mm. I loved that part of the story. You know, it's it's almost like some ancient, you know, mariner's map where there be dragons, you know, go, <laughs> yeah, that's go right. across this line and, and you know, you, you're in for some gunplay. And, and, of course, they went across the line and funny old thing. One of the really nice things in reading Dan's book is how he writes about the action in which he was awarded the VC mm. in, in such a simple way. He doesn't flower it up. And when I actually read that section of the book, I thought to myself, that's really quite interesting. Gee, I can't wait to read about his VC. But that was it. And I think that's really the measure of the man, that he could be nearly quite, I'm not going to say dismissive, that's not the right word, but play down what he did in order to be awarded the VC. Look, I think incredibly humble and self-reflective and like so many people who have been involved in these things, you know, that, that theme of mateship, mm. and, you know, almost the the deference to well, all the other people who are doing amazing things on that day as well and mm. and uh, which in many ways enabled or, or were, were certainly contributed to the, the ultimate outcome. But, you know, you cannot take away from, from what he did um, and you know, it it is almost that that classic citation: just selflessness, deliberate exposing yourself to fire to to protect a mate. And you know, in so many ways, that's a distillation of the experience of combat. You know, in that particular point in time, he's not thinking about sort mm-hmm. of queen country, the mission, right, wrong. You know, any of these sort of things. He's looking at his his mate who was. Uh, wounded and and his other friends who were trying to apply first aid under fire and and he's made a decision that he's going to uh, put his own safety in jeopardy to give them a fighting chance which he did yeah he had to draw fire from them to to enable the best chance for crash mckinney to be resuscitated Mm -hmm. which which sadly he was not he Mm. he died on the battlefield Um, and then dan comes back into australia and i love that part of the story where he goes into into the mining game, yep. he gets this call out of the blue from the chief of army saying, oh, something's come up and I need to come and visit you. He's ruminating that, oh, dear, what have I done? Have I <laughs> yeah, misappropriated a military watch? Or... <laughs> and uh, they meet in the airport lounge of the Kalgoorlie airport mm-hmm. and the chief of army, then David Morrison, hands him an envelope which outlines that he's been nominated for a Victoria Cross. Mm. Do you accept yes or no? I, I found, I guess, that, that was probably my favourite parts of, of Dan's story, that, that post-event. I 
I loved the, and and I think this is common for for a lot of soldiers. But coming back from what is probably this this really defining experience in your life, professionally and personally, these incredibly in, intense experiences of combat, and then just coming back into the normality of normal life with a lot of people who thankfully have had no exposure to this and and don't understand what you've been through. And I think that's a wonderful thing that most Australians don't uh, know what the aftermath of a roadside bomb looks like. But to then thrust back into that that just boring day-to-day existence and that almost sort of rudderlessness that that comes with that and then uh, that whole journey through the the Victoria Cross. And you'd think, I would have thought automatically, yeah, why why wouldn't you accept it? But Mm. just interestingly, the different impacts that it's had on his life and and the different reflections that he's had on that fateful decision to to sign on the line and accept the award. Yeah, that's right. The the end of the book, he, he does reflect deeply on what it means to be a Victoria Cross recipient, all of those things that are positive, however, all of those things that are less than positive. Um, and we can't possibly leave our reflections on Dan's episode without his wonderful quotable quote, which um, when he was thinking about what he did to um, receive the Victoria Cross, he says, if you give someone something to shoot at, turns out they start shooting at it. <laughs> That's very good advice for anyone. Don't take it up. <laughs> do some questions and feedback from listeners. So we've had a bunch of outstanding questions, feedback, emails, and we encourage anyone uh, to get in touch with us at um, debrief at unforgiving60.com, good, bad, or indifferent. But we had a cracking email from Ash, um, who... and. Let me, let me open by quoting his first line. Hey guys, not sure if you remember me, but I was a slimy little int pest in the mighty third herd for a couple of years when you were both there. <laughs> um, Ash, we, we did definitely remember you, and I wouldn't have described you as a slimy little int pest, but uh, amazing member of the team um, and involved, in fact, in that, that Pong Su issue. And, and in fact, I, I was waiting for him to, to call bullshit on our, our recollection of it, but he, he seems to to think that it kind of gelled with uh, his experience as well. But great to hear from you, Ash, and thank you for reaching out. The likes of Mike reached out on Instagram. Um, The likes of Mike is currently serving as a medic in the UK Armed Forces. You got a tip-off from a mate that this podcast was reasonable to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) That's bad Um, intelligence. He's been following the average 70-kilo dickhead, your brother, Dr. Dan Pronk, for a while. And he was saying that his father used to make him read the poem If by Rudyard Kipling out loud, and that really resonated. He's introduced us to another poem called, interestingly, Defeat by Khalil Gibran, 
1883 to 1931. Mm. And I like the opening uh, little stanza here. I might read it, but definitely worth checking out. Uh, defeat, defeat, my defeat, my solitude and my aloofness. You are dearer to me than a thousand triumphs and sweeter to my heart than all world glory. It's pretty cool. Check that out. Yeah. In fact, Gibran wrote The Prophet, didn't he? I don't think we'll ever know. (laughs) We've also heard from um, Cam, who said he got onto your channel because of the Wayne Jones episode. And in fact, Cam's not the only one. I think Wayne, um, amazing friend of ours, and and in fact, an incredible... um, uh, sort of business leader in his own right now, um, his episode resounded really well. And I personally, we, as we said in the, um, the the reflections on that during one of the previous RVs, uh, really found his mix of, of really savvy business intellect and, and just that down-to-earth Aussie humour um, really refreshing. And, yeah, I'm stoked that um, a number of our listeners have, have felt that same way. Oh, we like Vader. Vader says, quote, you guys are legends, unquote. Um, He says, uh, great to hear some normal, humble guys talk about solid topics. But he's attempting selection soon and wanted to know thoughts on how he should approach selection. Mm. Well, we spoke about the average 70 kilo dickhead before and Dan has done a lot of work with people uh, sort of building up to, to selection and, and is definitely worth following in terms of his social media feeds and his discussions on that topic. But a lot of it anchors on this concept of having a growth mindset. Um, clearly, there's just as much psychological preparation as physical preparation required to get you through that thing. Um, but one of the, the best things you can do is is get rid of your idea of, of sort of succeeding or failing and, and looking at any of these challenges as opportunities to learn and I think that instantly puts you in the mindset that A, you don't know it all already which we see some people on selection uh, believing uh, that to be the case but B, um, really puts you in that position to, to reflect uh, on um, things that have happened and kind of conduct a little mini debrief to, to extract the learnings from them to make yourself better next time around. Invader would be well served to listen to our follow-up with Mon Georgieva where she gives some advice to a friend of hers was about, which was, who was about to start selection and she says, don't try and be the person that you think they want to see, mm. just be yourself. Yeah, no, that's great advice and, and I think that's good advice for life in, in exactly. general, this whole concept of authenticity. I'd say for Vader, um, all they ever want you to do is not give up and don't try and read the play with any complexity. Just stay in your lane and do the best that you can possibly do your brother coming back to him at a really nice post on instagram recently about going on selection and thinking that everyone else is a contestant Mm. that you're competing with the individuals he said that that's a great failing it's actually just one giant team sport you have to be a team player if you're thinking oh what are they doing and are they doing better than me and you know if they get selected i won't that that is a sure fire way to not be there at the end it's a really interesting point, and, and certainly over the, the years that I was involved in SA selection courses, I think the advent of reality TV sort of impacted how people were approaching mm. this. I think a lot of folk were, were thinking, I can't get voted off the island, so I've got to form tribal allegiances or, or any of this sort of garbage. And, yeah. uh, we've always said, or the unit has always said, you know, if every candidate is suitable, we'll select everyone. 
Um, and if no candidates are suitable, we'll select no one. There's no quota and, and there's certainly no sort of single prize at the end. And how transparent is it for a member of the directing staff, an instructor, to see that someone is gaming. a solo man or solo woman, is gaming the system, yeah. is trying to be grey, is not a team player? How easy is that to spot? By and large, incredibly easy. Um, but sometimes um, we, or the, the unit often does this um, uh, peer review sort of structure where we, we try and get as many different views on an individual, including from their own teammates. And it's often fascinating when you see that feedback, um, if it's dissonant with, with what you're seeing as an instructor, it, it really shows that there's there's something more we need to see here. So sometimes you'll, you'll see people who you think are great fits and are killing it and are doing really well, and they'll get incredibly negative reviews from their, their peers, which may indicate exactly what you've said, that they're, they're DS-watching and doing a very good job of it. But sometimes it's the other way around. You'll see someone who's a, a um, what you think is a, a fairly low performer, um, but they get these incredible high reviews. And often when you look at them in a bit more detail, they're, they're either ragged or, or performing poorly because they're putting in the yards, they're carrying the extra weight, they're looking after their mates, you know, these sorts of things, which puts a, a very different light on it. So interesting, generally... It's incredibly transparent. You can see people who are trying to game the system, but sometimes it, it, it's um, interesting to get that peer feedback as well. And Vader's going to need to learn how to sing The Happy Wanderer and Lily Marlene. Correct. Classics. Classics. We got some great feedback from David. Hi, guys. Just a quick note of thanks for the podcast. I live in Melbourne, um, so I've just been through the lockdown, which was made easier by doing a daily walk and listening to past episodes. That's pretty cool. Um, that mm. we're able to help you get through the, the lockdown, David. And we met someone super interesting a week or so ago, Holly Barrett, professional swimmer. Mm. In fact, on the pool deck, uh, she just finished a session, one of, do I remember this rightly, nine swim sessions a week of between 90 minutes and two hours with 45 minutes of mobilisation beforehand, and that does not include sessions with the Institute of Sport psychologist. It does not include time in the gym. I think, what did she say? At peak, she swims around 35 kilometres a week. And she's a sprinter. It's out of control. I, I'm trying to think. I, I Most weeks, I don't drive 35 kilometres. <laughs> You're probably right. You don't drive very far at all. No, no. Very lucky. But yeah, no, amazing. And, you know, talk about... Um, Years being thrown into disarray. Mm. Imagine preparing for a once-in-four-year event, and as um, a thirty-something-year-old athlete, you know she's considered old. So this yeah. is the last crack at it for Olympics. Yeah. For Olympics, yeah. Tokyo twenty twenty is not Tokyo twenty twenty no, anymore. No, no, God, yeah, amazing um, sort of reflections on on Holly's resilience and, and ability to to keep going despite that incredibly devastating turn of events completely outside her control. That's right. In 2019, she had some incredible success. She felt like she was swimming at her at her peak and then enters 2020 with a strong eye on making the Olympic team and that's no more. So yeah, we had a great conversation on how you, how you get yourself through that to focus on an Olympics that might happen next year in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. But we won't rob too much for that because I'm very keen to, to sit down and have a podcast with, with Holly.
And a final bit of listener feedback is a follow-up from one of our esteemed guests, Tim Reynolds, who we spoke to um, a number of weeks ago now. In fact, it's all blurring into one. But, um, yeah, Tim, amazing story of endurance and resilience and optimism, but had a lovely follow-up in in terms of uh, sort of feedback on on the show, but also his continued battle, which he's he's fighting valiantly and, and continues to be an amazing inspiration. And some wonderful artwork that he's done. Even despite failing eyesight. And, yeah, um, yeah he's, again, a, a really impressive human who's uh, never sort of given up and, and always sort of focusing on the positive and, and what he can achieve, which is incredibly inspirational. Yeah, we wish Tim all the best for Christmas, New Year and beyond with the family. So, Tim, on this Christmas Eve, actually, full disclosure, will we have this edited and released by Christmas Eve? Tomorrow, definitely. Right. Uh, on this Christmas Eve, I wish you and your family and all our listeners uh, an amazing Christmas Day. <laughs> I hope it's restful. It's been a, a funny old year one way or another. But, yeah, I hope this, this sort of serves as a bookmark for all the, the interesting stuff we've had during this year and... and uh, looking forward to a a positive 2021 Merry Christmas to everyone See ya music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. Side.